Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med en, som vi i meget lang tid har forsøgt at få en aftale med, og som det endelig lykkedes at komme til at tale med. Det er Ben Rhodes, der i otte år var en del af Obamas tætte hold af rådgivere, og inden da var han også en del af den kampagne, der i 2007 og 2008 fik Barack Obama valgt som amerikansk præsident. Da Ben Rhodes blev en del af Obama-kampagnen, var de 30 procentpoint efter Hillary Clinton i meningsmålingerne. Han var med til at skabe den bevægelse, som begejstrede nation, og jeg er faktisk begejstret hele verden. Han var med til at skrive den tale, hvor Obama første gang brugte ordene Yes, we can, og We're the ones we've been waiting for. Derefter var Ben Rhodes det, som med en meget lang titel hedder Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications and Speechwriting under præsident Obama. Det betød, at han var med i alle de udenrigspolitiske beslutninger her med Obama rundt i verden i alle otte år. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. I'm Rune Lykkeberg and especially good morning to you, Ben Rhodes, who is with us from Los Angeles. Good to see you. Good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> Det er klart, at for Ben Rhodes er der en meget stor stolthed forbundet med Obama-projektet, både det, at han blev valgt, og meget af det, de udrettede i verden. Men for et par år siden udgav Ben Rhodes bogen After the Fall, Being American in the World We Made. Og den er et relativt hårdt opgør, også med mange af de politikker, som Obama-regeringen gennemførte. Han er således en meget sjælden fugl i det amerikanske udenrigspolitiske establishment, Ben Rhodes, der både gjorde alt, hvad han kunne i de otte år, han var med på Obama-holdet, for at realisere det bedst mulige af den amerikanske orden i verden, og efterfølgende har en utroligt hård kritik af hele den økonomi og den måde, som de forvaltede det hele på. Ben Rhodes' pointe i bogen er kort og godt, at amerikanerne altid satte profit, national sikkerhed og teknologi over alle andre interesser. Og at Kina bagefter kunne overtage USA's magt, der er egentlig ikke så overraskende, som man skulle tro, fordi Kina er profit, teknologi og national sikkerhed fraregnet demokrati. Det er derfor, hans bog hedder Being American in the World We Made. Thank you so much for taking your time. There are many of us here following your podcast and have followed your work. Her følger min samtale med Ben Rhodes god fornøjelse. And you were very influential for many of us without us knowing it because you came to work as a speechwriter for Obama. As a quite young man you were writing some of these speeches that inspired I think the whole world and actually made us here in, in Denmark believe that America was was going to lead us in a progressive direction. What was the moment back then? What was it that you pulled out of the air and the inspiration that you felt at the moment writing these speeches with the Obama team? Yeah, I mean, when I I was 29 years old when I went to work uh, on the Obama campaign in 2007, and um, there were three of us on the speechwriting team, so it's a small team, and it did kind of feel like a moment in which a whole bunch of ingredients came together to create something that probably couldn't be replicated <laughs> another time. Um, and I think there were a, bu- a bunch of things happening at once. First of all, you did have in the United States a real desire for change after eight years of George Bush and the Iraq War. Um, and, and so you had a, a younger generation that was fed up. And I think that often contributes to 
kind of moments of uh, a political breakthrough. But then you had uh, in Barack Obama, a totally unique politician with a very unique voice um, that brought in a lot of the more important themes in American history, right? I mean, it was kind of a legacy of the civil rights movement. Uh, it spoke to somebody coming from a, a disadvantaged background um, uh, to, to seek the highest office in the land. And I always tell people, you know, I I, I was one of the two writers on the, the Yes, We Can speech that became a, a huge sensation globally, really. Um, and sometimes people are disappointed to find out that there's like a speechwriter that worked <laughs> on that speech. They like to think that Obama just kind of appeared and, and delivered the words. But the reality, what I always tell people is close your eyes and try to picture any other politician delivering that speech. You know, try to picture Joe Biden or John Kerry or Hillary Clinton giving that speech. It, it'd be ridiculous. Um, and that's not a criticism of them. The point I'm making is that those words were authentic to Obama's story and, and his story was so aspirational. Um, and he had a politics that made his story not just about himself, but about all of us that were part of this movement. And so I think, you know, uh, in some ways, it's like making a stew and all the ingredients were there in 2008. You had a charismatic politician, you had a racial barrier being broken, you had a desire for change in the nation. And you had this campaign that was young people taking on the establishment, uh, even in the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton. And, and it just made for like a, a totally unique, I don't think I could write those speeches today if I tried. It, 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 I, I sometimes feel like I understand how a band that has a great run <laughs> of just writing hit songs and then they they can't do it again. I mean, it was something special about that time that I think contributed to, to those speeches. I remember we, back then my wife, she's also very politically engaged and we had two small kids at the time. And because we are on the left, we are used to the politicians that we're rooting for either they lose or they disappoint us. So we took our kids to San Francisco to be at a progressive time, at a progressive moment in history. And it was an absolutely magical moment. And we we saw the mobilization of people who felt who had felt abandoned by politics coming back into politics, inspired by Obama and the speeches that you were part, part of writing. What was it like for you as a young man with uh, obviously progressive uh, ideals and leftist views of the world, all of a sudden coming this close to power in such a young age? It was very, it was very strange and very intense. Um, you know, and you're right to make the point. You know, the progressive challenger never wins in American politics. You know, <laughs> um, and, and again, Obama was the underdog. People always, you know, forget Hillary Clinton. When I went to work for for Obama, was you know 25 points up in the polls. And and, and again, like it all throughout American history, it's it's almost never the case that the progressive outsider wins. And so that's very strange. Now, what I remember is I was 29, and and I moved out to Chicago. And I was one of the oldest people working in the office. You know, um, it was basically a bunch of kids in their twenties, and Obama, and then he had a couple of senior advisors who were older. Um, and so the good thing about that is we didn't know that we were supposed to lose. You know? <laughs> like, we were so young and so ambitious and idealistic, um, and believed so much in Obama that I actually never remembered being that. I mean, I, we were aware that we were behind in the polling. Um, but what was interesting is um, the, we were the only people who thought that for, for a, a while. And then when he started winning um, in the primaries, you got a sense of something building and you got a sense of this being kind of like a cultural moment as well as a political moment. 
And then when he got the nomination, um, the Democratic nomination, um, he was immediately the kind of the favorite to win the election against John McCain. And that's when I remember all of a sudden there's a lot of Secret Service. The scrutiny is different. The attacks on Obama became much more strident from the right, uh, kind of anticipating what was going to happen the next decade, essentially, the you know, racist attacks that he was born out of the U.S. It, so it simultaneously got bigger and uglier in terms of like, uh, interfacing with American politics. Um, I remember when we went on a trip to Europe um, in the Middle East in the summer of 2008, and there were, you know, 250,000 people in the streets of Berlin, it, it was like a glimpse of what we were going to be dealing with. Suddenly, this wasn't just an outsider running for president. This was someone who was about to assume a tremendous amount of responsibility. And, and so it hadn't really sunk in. And there, there are two moments when it did sink in for me, though. Um, the first is, even though I was focused on foreign policy, I was also the speechwriter who wrote about kind of financial issues. And when Lehman Brothers collapsed, when the global economy crashed in September of 2008, you know, there were just a few weeks left in the campaign. And they told me I had to stay up all night and write a speech that Obama would give the next morning. Um, and I remember, you know, I didn't fully understand what was happening. <laughs> and I remember going downstairs at our old office building in Chicago to, to smoke, because what else are you going to do if you have to give that, if you're given that assignment? And I was with a guy named Brian Deese, who's actually just Joe Biden's senior economic advisor. And he was explaining to me that the whole global economy was collapsing and that he, he was explaining the worst case scenario, which was even worse than what happened. And then I was on these calls and pe you know, people were describing how the markets would be paying attention to this and all the rest of it. And, and, and that's when I, you, know, you realize suddenly like <laughs> your words are no longer just about getting somebody elected. Your words are about whether the you know our market's going to tank and how are we going to come out of this and, and and so that's when it even before he was elected it stopped feeling like a campaign and started feeling something else and then I remember on election night in Grand Park all of a sudden it's like a bubble has dropped on top of you you know and all of a sudden you know instead of being just a normal person in crowds walking over to Grand Park I'm in like a motorcade with tons of secret service and their security perimeters and you have to wear pins that identify you. And, and I stayed in that bubble for until the last day of the administration and, and it never went away. And so the, that, that, those kind of the physical change on election day, but also the, um, you know, the responsibility that, that kind of came on our shoulders with the financial crisis. I, I, I went from being a young person, I think, to, to being <laughs> something else at that time. It's epic in an uncanny way that 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 this election ends with with the election of Donald Trump. I mean, I remember watching your personal reaction in the movie The Final Year. That that was just a shock and sadness in your face. And you you'd been doing the JPCOA, the Iran Agreement, and of course the Paris Agreement, things that you knew Trump would challenge immediately. What was that shock like for you at the time? You've been working on, on these issues for eight years, the Cuba opening as well. And, and then all of a sudden you have, you have Trump coming afterwards. Well, at the time, at that moment when Trump was elected, I, I wasn't thinking immediately about Cuba and the JCPOA and Paris Agreement. You know, obviously, I knew that those things were in danger now. And I would think a lot more about those in the in the days to come. But I think what was so profoundly unsettling, obviously, about the Trump election is it, it's one thing to have somebody 
coming after you who opposed some of your policies and might change some of your policies. But Trump kind of represented the opposite of every single thing I believed. And, um, you know, I write about in my last book that, that you know, I think a, there's a, a peculiar American strength and weakness <laughs> um, that we believe things are going to get better, that we believe that, you know, as as Martin Luther King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, I think that I had been conditioned by my own life um, to believe that things were going to get better, you know, um, and that America was going to continue to progress in a better direction on issues related to its foreign policy and issues related to, um, you know, racial justice and social justice at home. And I was smart enough to know by the time I was 39 that it wasn't that simple. But yet Trump getting elected, I think it, it exploded that that belief in my in myself, you know, that that suddenly you're being replaced by the worst version of America, you know, and um, and we suffered, you know, attacks from right wing conspiracy and racism and all the rest of it in this, particularly in the second Obama term, when things were getting uglier. And to see that validated in the figure of Trump, it just kind of changed my relationship with my country, um, my own experience. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I, I knew it immediately. Um, uh, I, di I didn't need to wait and see what kind of President Trump was going to be. I, I, I assumed the worst because uh, I, I knew what Trump represented. And, and so that, that's what really weighed on it for me. Then in the days to come, you start to you know, think, OK, then all these things I worked on. Uh, they're going to be, uh, he's going to try to dismantle them, you know, and, th and that was like living inside of a, a bit of a horror movie, you know, like, I'd wake up and look at, you know, his tweets, and is this the day he's going to wake up and tear up the Paris Agreement, or is this the day he's going to wake up and roll back my Cuba opening, you know, and, and that was not a pleasant experience. The, the first book you wrote, The World As It Is, was written almost immediately after you left office as a kind of a White House memoir. The next book that came out last year, which is a brutally honest and, and very, very inspiring and thoughtful analysis, is very different in, in, in the viewpoint. How would you describe the difference in the viewpoint of, of the two books? So it's a good observation. I mean, the, the first book I wrote very fast, and I did that on, on purpose. Um, the, the experience was very fresh in my mind, and, and I have a pretty good memory And I knew I had not digested the experience. You know, I had not really sat with my experience, but I, I wanted the book to feel like that. You know, I wanted the book, the, the world as it is, to feel like you're living this experience with me in almost real time. I haven't processed this at all. I have not digested this at all. This is what happened, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so I wrote that book in a year. Um, and then I had a little time and I... I'd had time to reflect, but I also found this way into my experience in the U.S. and my kind of worldview of politics, which was I was traveling a lot. And I started to notice that America made more sense when viewed from outside of the United States. <laughs> um, when you're inside it, you know, you're in some dumb political controversy of the day or you don't kind of question the underlying assumptions of American foreign policy or American capitalism or even American culture, you're just living in it. And when I was traveling in Europe and Asia and Africa, I was all over South America. I went all over. It was one way of dealing with the Trump years. And you're just talking to people and looking at America from the outside in. 
I felt like I could understand things better and I could see, see things more clearly. I think more Americans should do that, try to look at America from, from the outside in. And that became the way in which I wrote the second book, which I actually in some ways like more. And it feels like um, I wanted to write like the most honest reckoning that I could as someone who'd been in a position of, of power. You had all these Americans back home, and we still do, who sit and talk about authoritarianism. How, how did this happen? How did we see the rise of authoritarianism? And it's never America's fault, right? It's always Russia's fault or China's fault or Iran's fault. Or, but we, we don't face the fact that we've been literally the most dominant nation in the world for 30 years. And this is what happened at the end of it. <laughs> um, clearly, we had some role to play in these trends. Um, so I also wanted to to do present that in an honest way, which I think people who've been in positions like mine don't often do. In the beginning of your book, you referred to Rocky IV, the movie that most of us grew up with here and remember, because that was son, that was kind of the Cold War victory moment. Rocky, he's in Moscow, he beats the evil Victor Drago, the huge Russian giant, and he says, if I can change and you can change, then we can change. And that was kind of the anthem of the time that we, if people were just liberated, they would become like us, the mini Americans in Denmark and the real Americans in the US. Now, a couple of years ago, the Creed II movie, which is kind of the eighth movie in the franchise came out and you have the same meeting with the Russians and the Americans. And what is uncanny today is the similarities between the two upper classes that they both celebrate the winners. They both, the, the upper classes both live in isolated worlds. They live in very unequal societies. And I think that is a surprising recognition of a, of a movie franchise like Rocky Balboa. But I had kind of the same feeling reading your book that many of the things that you saw that were ugly on the outside, that you recognized them from America and many of the financial patterns that had been destructed. You almost resume a responsibility if, uh, on behalf of the Obama administration for them. Yeah, well, and... It's interesting because I didn't really work on those issues that directly, but I, I, I think it's the most, in, you know, I, I, what I found in writing the book was the profound centrality of the financial crisis to a lot of what took place after. You know, an official in Hong Kong told me anonymously uh, around the protest movement that, you know, 2008 was the moment that the narrative of liberalism and democracy collapsed in the West. And it was the moment that the Chinese looked around and thought, well, why do we have to defer to these people anymore? And that's a simplification, but I think there's something true about it. And I also, to your point about Rocky and kind of the interaction of culture and politics, but also how it contributes to what did America do with these 30 years um, since 1990, since the end of the Cold War? Because Rocky kind of represents that Cold War simplicity. Not that that was, everything was perfect then, but that was the frame. Uh, I describe. I tell this story in the in the in after the fall about going to Shanghai with then former President Obama in December of 2017. So he's at office. He's there. He's giving a speech. I'm traveling along because we're doing some other stuff. And I get woken up in my hotel room at 10 o'clock at night and told that the Vice Foreign Minister of China wants to see me. And I thought this was very strange because I'm not in government. We had no interaction really with the government um, around that trip. And he comes into my room with another guy and the other guy just kind of watches him the whole time. <laughs> I get a sense that the other guy is actually the more powerful guy. And he delivers this message. And, you know, after a lot of just, you know, throat clearing about how much 
you know, they liked, liked uh, the dealing with President Obama, et cetera. He said to me, we understand you're going to India next. Uh, and I said, yeah. And he said, we understand you're, you're going to meet, you know, the leader of the Tibetan terrorist movement in exile, what, what they call the Dalai Lama. And I said, yeah. And, and he proceeds to say that, that Obama should not meet the Dalai Lama, so offend everybody in China, et cetera. Now, I was not surprised to receive that message from them. They always try to keep people from meeting the Dalai Lama. What was interesting to me is that I had only been put in email contact with the Dalai Lama's representative like a few hours earlier. <laughs> so, so they were basically like, we read your email and we didn't like what we saw. So now we're going to wake you up and try to intimidate you, even though Barack Obama is next door. So I was a little unsettled and I walked out into the Shanghai night and there's the Bund, which is the Shanghai skyline, which looks like the future. It's these beautiful skyscrapers. People are taking selfies with selfie sticks in front of it. It, it literally looks like the future. And I, I thought about it and I, I realized that if you, if you took what I was looking at, the hyper-capitalism represented in those skyscrapers, the kind of mania for technology um, in all those phones, taking all those selfies, and the, the hyper-focus on national security, which was kind of, you could kind of feel in the air because they're in these phones, right? And you just drained all of the democracy out of it, all the values out of it. You have a very natural succession to the United States. <laughs> it's actually not as confusing, it seems, to, we go from America to China. And so to your point, I think if we're honest in the United States, in this 30-year period you know, after the Cold War, what do we prioritize the most? Profit, technology, and national security all come in ahead of democracy itself. And, and even I think in a progressive administration like Obama's where you know, we sincerely were trying to advance social justice at home and, and support um, um, civil society around the world. If we're honest, we prioritize those things. So why should we be surprised, we the United States, when this is what the world looks like? If we go back to the financial crisis, I remember there was a moment, and I think we were a lot of people hoping that Obama was just pulling off exactly the changes that we wanted. But there was a moment when he said, standing in front of the executives of Wall Street, that I'm the only thing standing between you and the pitchforks now. And I thought, well, this is a Franklin D. Roosevelt moment, like in his first fireside when 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 he he took on the banks. And then he he didn't he didn't really hold the executives of, uh, of of Wall Street accountable. He chose to do something else. And I should say here that I recognize that what you did at the time saved us in Europe because we were played by austerity and a very bad administration of the European Union here. So I'm not just blaming blaming <laughs> you guys. But looking back, it seems the moment when you left the anger to the right and and where the left became defenders or the Democratic parties became defenders of the system and became emblematic of the system and where people who felt frustrated by the inequality, they had nowhere to go but to the Tea Party. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I so I, I agree with basically, you know, the, the the way in which you present the question. I think um, there was a lot to it. So just to take the Obama piece of it, um, you know, part of what was so difficult is what people forget is the big bailout of the banks happened before he was president. So, <laughs> so we actually inherited that that bailout um, because the, the financial system collapsed in September, 
And so that even before the election, they pass TARP, right? Which we don't have to get in the troubled assets relief program. But so number one, that was already kind of a baton that had been passed to us. And we actually ended up getting a lot of the populist anger over a piece of legislation that Obama himself didn't even pass. Um, and so that spoke to just the bad timing of the, of the whole thing. Now, in terms of what he did do and what he didn't do, you know, his response, you know, I think was more progressive than in Europe, right? It was, let's spend some money. Um, let's build some infrastructure. Let's develop some clean energy. Let's, you know, let, let's make tax uh, uh, credits go to working people. And, and that was enough to kind of breathe life into our economy and kind of keep it alive. So I think from a technocratic standpoint, you know, a lot of the decisions that he made made sense. I think there was also probably, if we're honest, a sense that a new president, you know, totally new to this job, totally different demographic, you know, the first black president, a young president coming in and like dismantling the financial system would have been a pretty big roll of dice, <laughs> which I, what I always wondered if like, let's say if Obama was in his like fifth year as president, you know, I think if if I'm honest, he would have done some things more aggressively, you know? So that, that was a piece of it. Then there's a question of just like the holding people accountable. And I know what Obama would say if he was here, um, which is that actually precisely because American regulations and laws around uh, financial crimes have been so gutted, th there weren't actually clear violations of the law. Like the scandal is that it was legal. <laughs> the scandal is that a lot of those uh, mortgage schemes were not illegal. Um, and, and so, you know, therefore he passed laws to raise the level of regulation of the financial industry. All that said, I just think that clearly, if you look at the totality of the response to the financial crisis, there was more that could have been done to speak to the anger, to, um, it, 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 you know, it was more of a technocratic response um, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and, and it may have been inevitable that the populist anger was going to manifest itself on the right in the United States because Obama was in charge. And so, you know, usually the populist anger comes from the people out of power and there was a racialized component to it also in the United States, of course. Um, but I do think that, you know, it, I, I don't want to be one of those people who says this one thing would have made it all better, you know, if you just prosecuted these <laughs> CEOs. Or you'd, but I do think across the board, clearly that the, the response didn't speak to the depth of anger that people had and the sense that, uh, of unfairness of it all, you know. And so whether that's a should have been more policies, you know, to, to narrow inequality or whether that should have been more rhetoric or whether that should have been prosecutions. I'm not going to say that there was one thing that would have fixed it, but I do think we could have done more, uh, should have done more to just connect to the, the sense of unfairness that people were feeling. If you look at the way that Joe Biden is handling globalization, it seems obvious to me that he's trying to renegotiate some of the premises of, of negotiations. He put out this executive order in July 2021, which is very interesting about competition in America. And, and he says, this is all about security, that we must protect American workers, we must protect American jobs. And he says, it's about a capitalism that works for American, American workers. His team came to Davos uh, one month ago saying, well, it's no longer a race to the bottom, it's a race to the top. 
And, and the European Union is there were screaming and protesting about it, but they will be following him eventually. And it yeah. seems that that there was this era where you be, where you believe, but we all believe that free trade and promotion of liberal democracy would kind of go along together. And now it seems there's a renegotiation of um, of globalization and a way of doing trade policies where you protect domestic jobs. Ten years ago, even liberals would have called it protectionism. Now it's the way to do it. Do you think that this globalization strategy has something to it for Biden? Yeah, and and I should say, first of all, like, this is all a part of a continuum. And I think to defend Obama a bit on this, Joe Biden is where the Democratic Party is today. You yeah. know? And, and that's been a pro- so it's not that's been a process. If I look at Barack Obama's team in the eighth, I was as someone who's there all, all eight years, our team in the eighth year, which is a lot of the Biden team, was much more progressive than our team in the first year, you know. <laughs> um you, it's the difference between Larry Summers, you know, and um Janet Yellen. Uh, in the same way, the Democratic Congress, much more progressive today than it was in 2009. In 2009, we couldn't, with 60 senators, we had no chance at a single-payer healthcare system because we had a bunch of Democratic senators from the South and the Midwest who were very conservative. Now, uh, you know, uh, under Biden, you have a much more ideologically progressive Congress. So it's kind of part of what's interesting. And I say this not to you know, claim credit for Obama. I say it as advice to progressives, it takes time. You have to work to change what the status quo is inside of a political party. You know, who are the representatives in Congress? Who Who is filling out the staff of an administration? We have to invest in kind of multi-decade efforts to change the conversation. And I think the Biden approach to this does reflect uh, uh, like a significant change in how liberals, um, so not just kind of Democratic socialists, but liberals think about the economy. And yes, a big piece of this is an industrial policy, right? Subsidies, kind of picking national champions and key industries that you want to protect for various reasons. And so in clean energy and in semiconductors and some advanced manufacturing, it's a policy that is designed to to both um, you know, develop industry, uh, but also to, to serve some interest, climate change or national security. And I do think that that's that's the key characteristic of, of Biden's approach um, to his presidency, really, um, is making these big bets on certain industries. Um, and now I generally think it's a good idea. I do get a little worried. You know, I wish that the U.S. and Europe could do some of this more collectively. Um, this is the internationalist in me in that if part of what this is about is anticipating challenges from China and other things, um, I think if we're in our own subsidy wars with each other, um, you know that that's always going to be a part of pulling back from free trade a bit. Um, but but I think there is probably more room to try to find some, you know, I, on climate, for instance, I'd rather see a more more of a shared view of how to solve the problem between Americans and Europeans rather than like Americans just give a lot of subsidies because that's all we can get through our Congress while you guys are doing smart things around border adjustment and carbon taxing. And, and, and you know, um, so I, I'm, I support the Biden approach generally, but I do, I think it could be more international um, in scope. The other thing I'd say is at the end of the day, what is grossly unfair and feeding so much of the corruption in our world is the American tax code. <laughs> um, 
if you really wanted to deal with inequality, like you would have a tax code that reflected that. And that would mean like, you, you know, no corporations just avoiding taxes altogether. That would mean the wealthiest people actually paying more than the poorest people. Um, you know, we have designed a system over since the Reagan years that makes some people phenomenally wealthy and some people, most people struggling. The, the idea of revitalizing manufacturing, that's part of the problem. But the real, you know, the real problem is just that America is wired to foster inequality. And I wish we could fix it. We can't right now because like that, that goes nowhere in Congress. Um, uh, and you can't do that through executive order. So um, Biden, like Obama, is doing what he can do um, be, because it bas it's basically impossible to get legislation through Congress that dramatically raises taxes on the wealthy. I want to make a little jump here because I want to have your your insights on on the war in in Ukraine uh, as as well. It's a point in your book after the fall that the American power in the world has diminished. You, it's the opening of, of of the book, and some would say here in Europe now that it's kind of America has made a comeback with the uniting the West uh, against Russia. And one, you know, after the withdrawal in, in Afghanistan, people felt like nature was falling apart. And some of the allies, like Denmark, felt left behind by, by America. And all of a sudden, you have Biden leading the, the Western coalition, which is very difficult to lead because you have political opposition within it. On some very, very difficult premises, you want to maintain Ukraine as a sovereign state. You want to avoid a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. So he's managed to do that for, for, for one year now, and people are relying on the US. On the other hand, you have people saying, well, no, actually, this whole war shows how diminished in uh, the American power in the world is, because you have Brazil, you have India, you have China, you have South Africa, you have Indonesia, that actually, they're just leading a Western coalition. And you see most of the, the rising powers and most of the people in the world frankly, are not part of the Western coalition. How do you see this? So uh, both are true. Um, but I, I worry, I focus a little bit more on the second part. <laughs> yeah. um, on the first part, look, even as someone who believes that the United States, you know, has been diminishing as a superpower, the United States can do things that no other country in the world can do, certainly militarily, economically, like that hasn't changed. And the collective power of of the democratic world, you know, the West plus you know, Japan, South Korea, Australia, a few others, um, that is still the most powerful kind of force in the world. And so, you know, uh, diminished, yes, declined in terms of relative power, but let's not forget that you know we still have tremendous um, uh, assets and, and intangibles. That that nobody else has in the world, um, and like mobilizing a response to to, to help the Ukrainians in a matter of days, essentially, and that the values that we represent are very powerful, and the Ukrainians are the ones who are speaking to that. And I think Zelensky tapped into this longing for, for, to see somebody defending democratic values against a bully. You know, we've all felt like the bullies have been winning lately, and 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 I think what Zelensky is doing is tapping into a kind of collective desire to stand up for something again. And that's a very powerful force. I think we have to be very careful, though, because I hear people in Washington, you know, 
the whole world is united. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard <laughs> that, like the world is united on Ukraine or America succeeded in rallying the world. That's not true. Um, like, and, and, and that's a big change. You know, I think the war in Ukraine is impossible 20 years ago. You know, um, what, what you've seen is the erosion, not just of American influence, but of, of international norms and international standards that Russia and China just don't buy into this system anymore. And, you know, Russia's flagrant invasion of Ukraine is a flagrant attack on the, that whole system. To me, one of the great symbols of the war in this regard is that Russia was the chair of the UN Security Council when it was convened to respond to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It just shows you how broken the system is and that China would be willing to essentially ignore our sanctions, buy Russian oil, provide some diplomatic cover for Putin. That reflects a China that doesn't that is worried less about angering in the United States. And you can go on down the line through other countries, although I think the global south, it kind of mirrors the Cold War to a bit, which is like, this is not our fight. So like, just don't ask us to do anything here, um, which is a, a point of view that, that that I understand, even if I wish it were different. Um, so I think it does. It, it's Ukraine has reminded us of the strength of, of the democratic world and how much stronger we are when we act collectively and that how much better we feel about acting when there's a values component to it. Um, but it doesn't mean that the whole world has changed and that we're back to some period of American hegemony. I mean, we're, we're fighting, you know, in Bakhmut here. You know, there's also been a, a, a when I say we, I mean, the West supporting the Ukrainians, obviously. And, and the point I'm making is that we're not marching into Moscow. You know, like there's there's a kind of triumphalism sometimes in the commentary on Ukraine where you'd think that 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 literally were you know the, the the whole West is about to march into Moscow and depose Vladimir Putin, and that's not what I see happening. I see the beginning of what is going to be a very long struggle, um, and and that I, I totally support, by the way, <laughs> that struggle. But I think we have to be honest and realistic in the difficulties ahead. You know, in 2017, after Trump was elected, Angela Merkel, she gave a speech in Munich where she said, now we Europe couldn't rely on America for protection anymore. And that was really a galvanizing speech here in Europe. You know how the European Union is constructed. It's very, very hard for us to mobilize common fiscal policies and and, and common defense policies here, here in Europe. But that was kind of the tone when Trump was president, that we must be able to defend ourselves now it seems forgotten. And what we've seen here is that America has been leading not only militarily, but also economically uh, the effort to help Ukraine win a war in, in, in Europe. And, and I'm a bit confused about what should be the long-term strategy for, for Denmark and Europe. And, and if you're advising, if the Danish government, they called you and said, should we rely on protection from America for the next 20, 30 years? Uh, as we are now, hopelessly dependent on, on America? Or should we say that, that there might be a risk that, that you have someone worse than Trump in four years or, or, or eight years? And, and you know, there were rumors that he would withdraw from NATO if he, if he had a second term. John Bolton said that. What would be your advice to the Danish government? It's an interesting way of asking the question. I mean, first of all, yeah, I, I think under Trump, what you saw is is on in certain cases, Europe being willing to have its own foreign policy, you know, 
have independent views on on issues, independent diplomacy, um, obviously independent climate policies, things like that. Um, but I don't think it ever really shifted to Europe defending itself. Um, and I think people don't understand the degree to which the imbalances inside of NATO. What I'd be advising the Danish government is there's not a scenario in which you're not somewhat dependent on the United States in the next 20 or 30 years. That's impossible. You know, that uh, and Denmark is a is one of the more robust defense partners in NATO in terms of investing in certain capabilities and participating in missions. But the reality is that the the, the security architecture that we all live in is is all plugs back into America, you know? Um now I would in the in the strangeness of the world today, I I would I would be trying to create hedges against that. So in other words, I would accept we're part of an American-led security order. We shouldn't kid ourselves that that's going to change in 20 years. You know, sometimes you'll listen to a, a French official and think that, you know, one initiative and we can have a common European defense policy that is distinct. I just don't think that's logistically true. But so I, I would continue to operate within that system. But, you know, I would be thinking, you know, what's what's the hedge against that? Is there like if, if this all goes badly, I at least need, you know, a, a plan B. And that plan B, by the way, we may never have to act on it. Um, but, it, you know, I'd at least begin that conversation with some like-minded countries in my in my part of Europe. Again, realistically, not saying that this is going to take the place of America and NATO tomorrow. But uh, I, I again, my, my hope is that we don't need it. My hope is that the that NATO and the collective security architecture is as relevant 30 years from now as it is today. But, you know, the, I think everybody should have a plan for um, for a rainy day. The war also raises quite a big debate here in Denmark. The support for Ukraine is un unanimous here. You don't have any political parties, not even public intellectuals who are not in favor of of, um, of Ukraine. But but then we have this demand that we should pay 2% of our GDP for defense spending. That's part of our insurance policy in, in NATO. And on the one hand, everybody says, well, of course we should do that. We're part of we're part of an alliance. We should live up to our obligations. We want other countries to do that when it comes to climate obligations. So we should live up to our obligations. On the other hand, you have people and they're saying, well, look at the imbalance here. NATO is militarily mightily superior. Is that the best way for Denmark to contribute to the defense of the Western world? Would it not be better in, if we invested a lot in green energy and green infrastructure that could be imported to India, to Brazil or, or to India? Wouldn't that be a better way of defending our world? How do you come out on that? So I guess I'd make two points. And, and the second one is kind of like a newer idea along the lines of where you were going. I mean, first, I think people do need to realize that the defense spending is relevant, even if you're not the ones, you know, developing all of the 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 high uh, most advanced hardware. To give you an example, most of a lot of what we're providing Ukraine are just stockpiles of ammunition and artillery, you know, kind of smaller arms. The United States is overwhelmingly providing that and financing that, but it's drawing down all of the stockpiles of those things in Europe, for instance. And and so increased commitments, that's support to Ukraine. And and that support isn't just like, you know, F-16s. If the, it, it, This is like just the nuts and bolts of what a military needs. And so we've seen Ukraine has reminded us that having a capability across the alliance that that isn't just the high tech stuff is still very relevant to to your security in Europe. And I, I think that's a good argument for increasing defense spending generally, even if it seems like a small part of a whole, because 
every part adds up. We're seeing shortages already because of Ukraine. To your other point, though, like I think an interesting conversation that could take place between the U.S. and Europe is, I think I do think national security needs to be thought of more broadly. Development is a huge piece of this, you know, um, and in every conflict that happens, you know, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's in Ethiopia, there's a huge development need, some of it humanitarian, some of it strategic that emerges. And I think if there is a world in which we think of it not just as a hard and fast 2% defense spending thing, but how much money are we contributing to security? I think that suddenly, you know, if, if Northern European countries, you know, are, are providing a much greater share of their budgets on development than the U.S., I think that's relevant to the conversation. So I think we climate's a little different because I think we should be doing that anyway. But I, I think having a conversation about security funding would make sense. And, and I would say that if Northern European countries are going to do a, a, a lot in the development space, then that should count uh, to some extent against uh, an overall commitment. Well, thank you very much for these advices to Denmark. I just have one last question for you, but it's a very difficult question, which is at the moment, we we, we can still say we're not at war with Russia. We're supporting someone who's who's at war with, uh, with Russia, the Ukrainians. They're fighting for our ideals and, and, and principles, but we're not at war with them. And we can maintain this position as long as Russia is not winning. But what if in two or three months, Russia appears to be winning and gaining ground? What are your red lines here? Should we accept Russia winning the war if the alternative was that we entered the war ourselves and became active participants on the ground? I know this is a very difficult question, but I think yeah. you're the best person I know to ask it. I mean, I, I think that, um, yeah, because we are in a kind of lend-lease place, right? Uh, like the United States was in 1940. And I hope that the analogy doesn't continue to the point that the United States gets in the war when things are not going well. I guess I would say that what I'd expect the Biden team to do first is, you know, significantly increase the pace and flow and nature of weapons that are going to Ukraine and think that that could arrest the Russian offensive. I think it's a whole other conversation about going directly to war with Russia. And I think to me, the red line has to be and remains like NATO, you know, attack on, on NATO. It'd be a different set of circumstances. Now, I, I can see if if Russia's using chemical weapons, if Russia's using nuclear weapons, I could I think the U.S. would respond with con in a conventional attack on Russia, um, probably on its fleet in the Black Sea or something, right? So I think even if it, it did escalate to that kind of confrontation, there'd be an effort to keep it isolated. But my concern is that this is not easy. And the war in Ukraine could escalate, something in Iran could escalate, something could happen in Taiwan. We are in a situation right now where you can see how this thing could become global. And I think that is all the more reason to be deliberate and calibrate assistance and be thoughtful about the best way to secure Ukraine's sovereignty um, while not getting into that kind of war. Ben Rhodes, thank you so much for taking your time. It was such a pleasure talking to you and thank you for your insight and your inspiration. We'll keep following your work and take a lot from it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Det var så min samtale med Ben Rhodes. Hvis man gerne vil høre mere på Ben Rhodes, så er han medvært på den ugenlige podcast, som bliver udgivet af Crooked Media. Den hedder Pod Save the World. Hvis man gerne vil læse den bog, og det kan jeg stærkt anbefale, som, som vi taler om, så hedder den After the Fall. 
Being American in the World We Made, lige efter sin tid i Det Hvide Hus, der udgav Ben Rhodes en anden bog, som vi også berører kort i samtalen, og den hedder The World as It Is, A Memoir of the Obama White House. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med Toril Møge, som er litteraturprofessor ved Duke University. Hun skrev for mange år en bog, der hedder Sexual Textual Politics, der blev en feministisk nyklassiker. Hun har skrevet den store biografi om den franske filosof og feminist Simone de Beauvoir, og så udgav hun for fem år siden en bog, der hedder The Revolution of the Ordinary, som er et opgør med alle de avancerede teorier, som hun mener fjerner frigørelseskampen fra de mennesker, som det hele handler om. Jeg håber, I vil lytte med der. Og så vil jeg sige, hvis man generelt gerne vil lytte til information, så kan man jo altid gå ind i App Store, downloade vores app, logge sig ind og få et prøveabonnement, som er gratis i den første måned. Og der kan man lytte til en times oplæste artikler hver eneste dag. Så hvis man synes, det er utrolig spændende, hvad information foretager sig, men man ikke nødvendigvis har lyst til at læse så forfærdeligt meget, så kan man faktisk nu tilgå det hele gennem ørerne. Folk siger, at det er utrolig behageligt, men også frygteligt, hvad end anden at begynde at lytte til information. Hermed er både tippet og advarslen givet videre. Den her udsendelse var som alle andre langsomme samtaler, klippet er produceret af vores gode ven og kammerat, Anne Pilgaard Petersen. Tak for denne uge. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.